0: is your host Darren Hood thank you for taking the time to join me on today and as always a special welcome to those of you that are listening for the very first time we're going to have a little bit of a segue again this week I know I covered a specific topic last week but I've been entertaining a few questions from different people on social media people I've been interacting with people who came to the UX chit chat hour there were certain questions that keep coming up and I thought, hey, let's just do another UX potpourri session, which means that we're just going to be all over the place, just addressing several different topics that have been coming up, something that people might be interested in hearing about. And people have directly been asking me about here in recent days. So let's go ahead uh, in the interest of time, because I've got one, two, three, four, I believe five questions to address today. No, four. Correction, four. Only four questions. So let's dive in. Four topics, I should say. Let's dive in with number one. And I really like this question. I don't recall ever having anyone ever ask me about this before or ask anyone about this. Uh, actually, although I think it does come up from time to time in different circles, but this particular topic is really interesting. And I think a lot of people will agree. A person was asking. Basically, when you're doing UX work, how do you identify or spot the right problem? How do you know when you're doing the right work? How do you know when the things that you put your hands to, so to speak, are things that are gonna yield value when it comes to UX? And this is, this is great. It is great to hear somebody think about something like this to know that, number one, we're not order takers, folks. We don't just sit around and wait for people to tell us what to do, there has to be some degree or a great degree, I should say, of proactivity that's a part of what we do and how we work so that we can bring that value. And and it shows just how strong of an asset UX can be in a given environment. I, I have constantly, or for years, have said that UX is actually a leadership function. It's not just thought leadership within UX, but what UX brings to the table potentially is a leadership mode of thinking that especially when you're not relying on other people to tell you what to do, it's really, really critical and really, really important. So here are my thoughts on the subject. Well, the first one and the obvious one has to do with client requests. We're always going to get requests from clients and stakeholders asking the UX team to get involved with something. Now, as I just said, we're not order takers. So we don't just do something because somebody asked us to do it. We do have to make sure that we investigate and validate when somebody submits a request because everybody doesn't know what UX is. I've seen instances where people try to get UX involved from a marketing perspective. And while we can help, it's better to either partner with the marketing department or hand that off to the marketing department than to do marketing oriented work because that's not our arena. Uh, It's best to check to make sure that what somebody is asking you is valid so that you're not wasting time or end up in a situation where ux doesn't really have a horse in the race so to speak and now because it's not really our arena you're not really going to be able to affect things the way that you should or the way that you could and so you we always want to make sure that we're looking at things is this really what we need to be doing is what the person's asking us about or what the team is asking us about is this really an issue And is it something that UX needs to be involved with? So make sure that you always investigate and validate. But that is the main way that a lot of teams are going to identify and spot problems. They're going to flat out tell you. I I worked for a company once and there was a lot of abandonment on the shopping cart. They knew that this was a problem. They had the data that showed that it was a problem. There was no question that it was a problem, but they didn't know why it was happening. And they came to me, I did the same thing. I validated that it was a a reasonable and a realistic request. And then I dove in, I started doing our little UX oriented activities and I was able to confirm exactly what was going on. But again, that's just a quick example of a client request where it is important, it's valid and that's something where we can go ahead and get our hands dirty. There are instances where people will do that and it's not. And it's really critical that we stand up and say, hey, this really is not a UX issue or this really isn't in our wheelhouse. We don't have anything in our toolbox that can address this. Or in some cases, you know what? All this is is A, B, and C. We really don't need to do any work on this and hand it back to them so that the UX team can focus on fires that we really need to put out and not just because somebody just decided to hand something off to the UX team. That is critical. The next thing is a, a series of things. The way that we can identify and spot the problems that we need to be solving a lot of times comes out of research efforts and different types of research efforts. Examples, you could perform a heuristic analysis. The example that I gave is how I was able to find out what was really going on and what really needed to be changed in that that task flow, that user flow, so that they could turn around and and take care of the abandonment issue in that purchasing process it was it was very problematic but the heuristic analysis gave us what we needed we didn't even have to do full-fledged usability testing and some people would say that you always have to do it actually no not if the problem is staring you in the face If the problem is staring you in the face and you can identify heuristically, then turn that information over heuristically, and maybe you can do some research later to see if you can identify something else. Because heuristics are only going to find, at most, 90% of issues with an experience. So is that going to find everything? No. But if there's some low-hanging fruit and you can identify it through heuristics, by all means, go ahead and do that and move forward. That is the best thing to do. That's the wisest thing to do. It's the most cost efficient thing to do. And then do some usability testing later to confirm what's going on so you can provide some additional value and additional input. But heuristic analyses is one way. One thing that I don't see a lot of people doing or hear them talking about in UX circles is engaging in performing a SWOT analysis where you identify the strengths, weaknesses, (laughs) opportunities, And threats associated with the experience because a lot of times you can, through that type of an analysis, you can find out what problems need to be addressed in the user experience. And sometimes you can find them on your own. Sometimes you're going to find them because you're going to interview stakeholders and clients. You're going to get into the weeds and and dig and find out what's going on and then fill out the different aspects, the different... Tiers, if you will, or segments of your SWOT analysis, so that you can address the issues and then provide some recommendations. But that's another way. Competitive analysis. This is another way. If you perform a competitive analysis and look at what key competitors and some of those outliers, some of those companies that are on the fringe, maybe new players in in the arena where your company or team is operating. Take a look at things from a competitive perspective, and you will, in many cases, you will be able to identify what problems need to be addressed from a UX perspective. Next, benchmarking. Something else that you do not hear a lot about, if you make it a point to constantly be in the business of evaluating your solutions, your tools, your resources, always looking at what's going on, trying to identify if they're all providing an optimal user experience, you will be proactive through benchmarking. That's one of the things I love about about benchmarking. It provides a proactive way to engage as a UX operation so that you can come to the team and say, hey, we discovered X. The time to task for this is too long, and we believe that there are some ways to improve this so that we can get ahead of this and not be reactionary, but we can be proactive. Benchmarking helps with that. Unfortunately, very few UX teams engage in benchmarking. Teams don't usually have the time or they don't have the manpower to engage in benchmarking. And so it gets, it's something that gets left undone in many cases. But if your team can do it, I highly recommend that you do. Next, we have general data analysis. Now, this could come by way of data from intercept surveys. It could be just general analysis. When I worked for one OEM automotive manufacturer, we supported their, their, their projects, I should say we would meet monthly and look at data associated with people's downloading of resources on the automaker's website. So we would look at PDFs, we would look at videos, we would look to see how much people are downloading things and and try to evaluate what's going on based on just basic Google Analytics styled data. When you look at this type of data, It tells you what someone has done. It doesn't tell you why they did it or how they did it, but it does tell you what they've done. And so it can provide some insights that in many instances will spark you wanting to go and dig deeper doing additional research, but it does, even though it's very basic and it's very, very high level, it does give us some insights with regard to user activity in general, and it could in turn highlight a problem on the site. With intercept survey data, people are opting in to complete a survey when they're done. They give you input about what's going on on the site. I remember in the past, we've done that a lot. I used to love going through intercept survey data because people are telling you many times if they've had a problem on the site. They tell you about something that they found to be difficult, to be problematic. The intercept survey data, a lot of times, does allow you, it is reactionary in many cases, but hey, reaction is better than no reaction, proactivity is better than reactivity, and uh, reactivity is better than no activity, so that's okay, but these are all ways to help identify problems, the right problems, and last point, just general proactive team operation, which I keep alluding to with several of the examples that I brought up, if you're in the business of trying to get ahead of things, that's a wonderful way to operate Why wait until clients and stakeholders and, worst of all, customers and users tell you there's a problem? Just identify the problem up front and then try to triage it as quickly as you can. And that's going to vary from company to company based on how teams operate. But the more proactive you can be as a UX team, the better. And then you identify what the problems are. A lot better, easier to bring value, wonderful thing for UX teams to do so that's how you identify and spot the right problems it's good that you have that holistic mindset and people will appreciate you stakeholders clients will love you your leadership will love you for taking that kind of mindset but if you just sit back and wait on everybody to tell you that becomes problematic over time so you don't want to be in that mode of operation topic number two for today I want to spend some time shooting down what I refer to as the endearment mindset or the endearment method. There are a lot of people out here today, and they try to tell people who are new to UX, just getting going, maybe they went to a boot camp, maybe they just got their degree, maybe they're self-learned, whatever it might be, but no matter where they learned, these people are just getting started, and folks will tell them, you know what? you just need to get out there. You just need to go out there, connect with as many people as you can on LinkedIn, connect with as many people as you can on Twitter, just connect with everybody everywhere, make your 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 voice heard, chime in on conversations as often as you can, get out there and be an influencer, make a name for yourself. Folks, I'm here to tell you today, none of these things have any real value. It is just an attempt of someone to to endear themselves to others or vice versa, to, to make yourself the social butterfly and be the darling of the moment, but it doesn't have any value. Is it okay to connect to people? Yeah. I do, however, caution you. You only want to connect with people that are worth connecting to. I have a lot of people who connect to me, and then when they hear me say certain things, they run for the hills did you not look at my background? Did you not look at some of my other posts? Did you, you know, this is the, the type of thing that, that ends up coming to mind when I see how quickly some of these people distance themselves. I am a realist. I'm gonna tell you what you need to hear. I'm not gonna stroke your ego. I'm not gonna coddle you. I care about you enough and respect you enough as a human being, to tell you what you need to hear so that you can be your absolute best. A lot of us have had people just replete, groups of people replete, our life replete I should say, uh, with people who are toxic positivity folks, the Pollyanna folks, who see the best in everything, and if there's a nail in your tire, they won't tell you. Folks, that's that's counterproductive. It's not wise. It's going to set you up for some type of failure or rejection in the long run because people appreciate truth. A lot of people do. Critical thinkers do. Some of the best people, the people you want to work for do. When people reject truth and they shoot things down and they have that Debbie Downer kind of mindset where they're always trying to identify the Debbie Downer when you frequent a company of such individuals you're putting yourself in a in a position where it's going to be really really difficult to really grow and avoid dysfunction, toxicity and things of that ilk So be careful of that I, I can't I can't stress that enough, but it's not important to endear yourself to anybody. Engage genuinely. You're going to meet people in the UX community. Great. Learn what they have to offer you as far as helping you to grow as an individual. Don't try to be an influencer. You're not equipped to be an influencer. If you have been in UX for the, the figurative equivalent of five minutes. Trying to be an influencer is a complete waste of time. Uh, You're not equipped. Don't do it. (laughs) it, it It's really pretty simple. Uh, Instead of trying to make a name for yourself, spend that energy building your knowledge, your skill, your acumen, and be patient. It's what all of us that have survived and, and thrived for a long time, it's what we all did. You continue to grow. You continue to build yourself. You will always have something else that you need to learn. But don't go out there and try to make a name for yourself because it's just going to result in you making a fool of yourself and we don't want to see you do that today. And and I saw somebody recently who made a statement. They talked about how they've been doing UX for years and I went, what, for years? And I looked at the person's profile and the person had only been doing UX for about three months and they wanted to paint this picture that they had been around for a while. I don't know why people feel the need to make themselves look more important or more skilled than they are, especially when it's going to come out. It's going to be, in many cases, very easily uh, uh, detectable or discernible when someone hasn't. I mean, I was really shocked. Man, how long has this person, the example I just gave, how long has this person been doing UX? Hmm, and I'm like, wow, the person is in their first UX job and they just got it three months ago. And now they want to position themselves as as an influencer. I don't know why people think that that's valuable. I don't know why people think it's important. That is a misuse of energy and it's just deceitful. It's not very emotionally intelligent. So again, folks, let's shoot down the endearment method. Let's leave that be. Topic number three for this segment of UX Potpourri There has been a lot of talk and we have an episode coming up where we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail, but there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks. There always is talk about this particular topic, but I've been involved in several conversations over the last couple of weeks or so where people were talking about, you know, what's the best way to structure my portfolio? And first, I need to say that UX portfolios have become a necessary evil and they've become a necessary evil in that people who didn't understand what UX was somebody had the this great idea of the grand idea that UXers could be evaluated the same way that UI designers were evaluated so the process became an exercise in aesthetics and this is why a lot of people today, the people with the best looking portfolios, get the most attention. And then that's another problem. And we'll address that when we when we have the episode where we talk about portfolios at length. But the whole portfolio bit, it's, it's a necessary evil. People ask for them. A lot of times there is a growing number of people that are no longer asking for a portfolio. They finally got it and they understand you don't need to see the UX portfolio as much as you need to talk with the candidate and have them explain things. But it's best to have a portfolio available because of the expectations. That is not going to offset the problems associated with UX portfolios. But if you don't have one, you're going to have trouble getting interviews. So I highly recommend that you do have one at least for the time being. However, the question at hand, again, is when I put together a portfolio, what are what are some of the best things that I can do? Well, number one, make sure you're telling the story of the projects. Tell your story. I actually put together a site. uh, And people can go out there and they can learn about me and then when they want to see the work. They have to get my password. You can't see my portfolio without password. Uh, why is that, Darren? Because some people steal portfolio content from other people's portfolios and put it in their portfolio, and then they they rebrand it or they do different things because they're trying to make themselves more more attractive from a hiring perspective. So I'm only giving my, my uh, password is only going to people who are recruiters, uh, and then I'm going to start changing it on a regular basis. So, cause if I gave it to you three years ago, you don't need it now. I have seen an instance before where some of my content was stolen by somebody. It, it make sure you password protect it. That's one thing I got to throw in here. It's not in my list. Forgot to say that password protect your portfolio to protect your interest in it, but make sure you tell the story of your projects. Most importantly, make sure you talk about the problem that you and your team were working to solve. Please be succinct in your portfolios. It is really sad to see a case study or a portfolio where it's what I have always affectionately referred to as attack of the killer scroll bar, where it's just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And no, we don't care about the fold. It's just that if you become overly verbose in telling your story, a lot of people, that's done. They're, they're done with you. So you want to make sure that you're being succinct that you've got a large enough font, that you make things as easy to read as possible. Do not use serif fonts. That is, if your portfolio came across my desk and I see a serif font, uh, there is the possibility that I will no longer be interested in you as a hiring manager because that's a sign that you're not aware of certain heuristic factors associated with typography. So, Again, I mean, your your UX portfolio has to have a good UX. That is what this is all about, basically. Make sure that you provide examples of your work. And remember, UX work is actually rudimentary. Truth be told, a good UX portfolio is quote-unquote ugly. And when I say ugly, it has all those basic things in it that people actually don't want to see. And there are some things that go in, UX portfolios that some folks just, if they see it, they get turned off, but that lets you know that they don't have a good UX maturity level. And again, I'm trying not to go down that rabbit hole. That's one of the problems with portfolios is that a lot of people don't really know how to review them. So if you put what should be in there in there, some people will actually, (laughs) they don't want anything to do with you, but you actually did the right thing. So you could do the right thing and your portfolio falls on uh, deaf eyes, so to speak. Uh, because you did the right thing and because they don't know what the right thing is. But at any rate, make sure, put that rudimentary work in there because that's what UX is. If your portfolio is too pretty from a standpoint of the artifacts and the examples that are in it, there's something wrong. Then it's, it's not really UX. Make sure that you talk about your results. What was accomplished in the project? What did your team do? What was improved? What did you, what problems did you solve and how successful were you in solving those problems? You want to make sure that you talk about that in your portfolio. And lastly, and this is sort of a uh, off the beaten path just a tad, it's one of the things not to do. If you were part of a team, it's okay to say that but there is absolutely no need to present info about your team. We don't need to see pictures of your team. We don't need to see their names. We don't need to see what they did. We need to see what you did. It's your portfolio, so make sure you're highlighting you, which a lot of people out here are not doing. And one other thing I want to say, a lot of companies, when they see that cookie-cutter boot camp format for portfolios, A lot of companies have started just writing those people off and disqualifying those people from consideration right off the bat. So make sure that you have a good structure to your portfolio. If you are by chance, you don't have uh, any real work experience and maybe you just have things you did in school, be honest, say, hey, I don't I'm trying to get an entry level UX job. I have some things that illustrate what I know about what happens during the design process or different work that I've done, and I want to showcase what I do know. Just do that and state that, but but don't, don't falsify. A lot of people lie in their portfolios. They lie on their resumes. Don't do any of those things, and if somebody who does know UX, if you do that, they're going to see what's really going on there, and they're going to write you off immediately, so please be genuine in what you are doing. Our last topic that we're going to cover for this UX Potpourri segment has to do with this constant mindset that uh, I should say a very uh, common mindset that shows up amongst people, especially those looking for their first UX job. A lot of people think that everybody just wants seniors, that all job opportunities are only for senior UXers. I'm here to tell you, I've talked about it before, I do believe, I'm here to tell you that's not really true. Matter of fact, it's just not true. All opportunities are not for seniors. Uh, So so you have to ask yourself, when when you say something, sometimes you need to ask yourself, is what I'm thinking really true? Because if you embrace something that's not true and then you begin to formulate your activities and your attitude, structure your attitude based on that and it's wrong, you're gonna create issues. Not to mention the fact that that if you have this, nobody's hiring entry level people, and you bring that attitude into an interview, it's going to show up during the interview and you're not going to get the job. Not because you didn't have any experience, but because you had a bad attitude and it was pretty obvious. So I, I recommend people that I know I've said it on on some posts in that UX Job Seeker Manifesto. I talk about it there. Lose the attitude. So that you can be somebody that comes across as more personable and you definitely want you, if you are marketable, you want you to shine through. So please make sure that you do that. A lot of the people saying that job opportunities are only for seniors are not, it's not like these people went out and examined a boatload of job opportunities and then found that a hundred percent of them were seniors. So, if you see a job opportunity, you're going to see job opportunities for seniors. You're going to be out there, and there's several reasons for it, and we'll address those in a few moments. But it just is what it is. So if you don't qualify for that, look for another one. There are more entry-level job opportunities out there than people think. So don't don't sabotage yourself yourself by worrying about the fact that there's a lot of senior job opportunities. It's not a big deal. Just just keep looking. So think about this. The UX positions include the following. Here's a complete listing pretty much of what you're going to see. Intern, associate, entry level, mid-level, senior, lead, principal, manager, senior manager, and director. Every position out there pretty much falls into one of these categories. One of the reasons that people are hiring for seniors a lot is because I remember seeing an article years ago where somebody said that you don't UXers actually don't stay in positions for very long. So it's almost like UX years in a position, it's like dog years. It's almost like if you're in a position for two years, it's actually more akin to eight to 10 years that somebody would be in another job. And there's reasons why you have these short stints, why UXers do, why these short stints exist. And a whole bunch of reasons, which I'm not going to get into today, but a lot of short stints. You do not find a lot of people who have been in their UX position for a very long time. So... And because the people who are in the mid-level senior or lead or principal are some of the main people that are going to be need to be backfilled, then those are the positions that for the most part are going to show up as being available when you look at the different job postings on LinkedIn or Glassdoor or Indeed or anything like that. So, so please keep that in mind. You know, let's, let's try to be more sober minded about these things. Keep in mind that there are a ton of companies out there a ton of companies out there and we so when you see a lot of these senior positions really consider how you performed your search because if you search for positions that require a certain amount of experience and limited to that then you're not going to see as many senior positions you're going to see things that are like three years and less and and for the record there are again way more entry-level positions than people think and they'll miss them because they're too busy complaining and looking at at the other ones but at any rate companies keep this in mind will hire based on need whether they are growing their teams or backfilling growing teams does not usually consist of hiring a bunch of entry-level people even though there are some some people who've been in the game a long time who actually are counseling people and telling them, you need to hire a bunch of entry-level folks. If you hire a bunch of entry-level folks, there's nobody to do mentoring. There's nobody to grow the department. There's nobody to handle the strategy of the team. There's problems when you have too many entry-level people, which is why companies don't have a lot of, the companies that know what they're doing, mind you, don't have a lot of entry-level positions available, but they are available. So all the positions are not for seniors, but it does look like that if you're biased and when you're eager to find a position. It's like when you're looking for something at and you lose something in the house and you're looking for it, you want everything you touch. You want the thing you're looking for to be there. The same thing happens when you're looking for that entry level, that first gig, that first UX job opportunity. You want everything to be that, but... Settle down. Everything's not going to be that. It's, it's not realistic. It's not accurate. It's not healthy. So remember, companies are going to hire based on need. And they were not thinking about you or me when they posted their job. And so you want to just settle down, be patient, and continue to apply. Go, there are going to be a lot of rejections all the time. and And when you're getting your first gig, please know, it is an uphill battle, and we'll wrap up here. It is an uphill battle. It's not simple. If you found something quick, good, you were fortunate, because most folks don't. And we hear a lot of stories of people that it takes them a year to get their first UX gig. You need to be prepared for that, knowing that that could be the case, as opposed to or instead of complaining because you haven't found anything yet. There are also people who complain about not finding anything and it's not about the fact that they don't have opportunities. There are people who don't find anything because they're actually shooting themselves in the foot. How many times have you followed instructions? I I have given people, I was hiring once for an entry-level person, posted the link for people to apply, told people to go and apply, I asked people to let me know because if they let me know, I was gonna put them in the referral funnel, which was gonna help them to stand out a little bit more. But a whole ton of people that were interested in the position never applied. For some reason, they thought that sending me a message on LinkedIn was the equivalent of applying. And I got responses or messages from our recruiters. so many messages. Darren, person A, person B, person C, person D. Darren, none of these people are in the system. None of them actually applied for the job. We didn't find them anywhere. So I find, and I hear about this a lot, not just in the example I just gave, but I hear about this a lot in talking to other people. You got a lot of people that just will not follow instructions. And when you don't follow instructions, guess what? Keep in mind, if an entry-level position comes up, There could be anywhere from 50 to 500 people that applied for that position. It is critical that you do the right thing, that you follow instructions, that you go through the application process, that you submit. Stop putting your emphasis on the the portfolio. Yeah, you'll need a portfolio, but make sure your resume is appropriate. Make sure that your resume and your LinkedIn profile have been structured properly. Make sure that people can can see what they need to see when they're trying to to vet you out and to see whether or not they should be moving forward with you. There are so many people. I mean, it, it's just amazing how many people are talking about how they can't find a job, but their biggest enemy is actually themselves. Their biggest obstacle is actually themselves, and they have not done a whole lot to help themselves. So make sure that you're not one of those people because it's not going to play out well for you if it is. And that's where we're going to end today. Make sure, folks, that you're doing the right things. Remember that getting that first UX gig is indeed an uphill battle. But also know this. It's going to be quite similar throughout your UX career, especially when, and and some folks are going to have a hard time swallowing this, when you become a true senior, you're going to have a hard time finding a position because if things are as they are today, because a lot of companies don't know how to hire The hiring process is dysfunctional, and a lot of companies don't want seniors on their team a lot of times because the person in charge is unqualified and finds senior UXers to be a threat. It's a really weird arena right now in UX, but folks, all you entry-level people out there, keep getting better, keep making yourself qualified, keep growing, keep applying, and keep your head yeah, look, don't, don't, don't get the two. The two is not going to help you at all. So folks, that is all the time we have for today. And then we're going to be celebrating starting very soon. We're going to be celebrating the two year anniversary of the world of UX podcast, beginning with next week's episode. So we're looking forward to that. we got a lot of things lined up to share with you, uh, bring a lot of guests back. We're going to have a lot of fun with that. But until then, This is the host of the world of UX, Darren Hood, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.